Amen. Thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And um, I'm going to use this one here. As Mr. Bechtold is making his way off the stage, our resident Renaissance man himself, can we say a word of thanks to Nathan Bechtold for leading us this morning? Uh, Nathan, uh, I said this in the first service, I'll say it again. Nathan has stepped in to serve this church in so many different ways publicly. I just want to say how thankful I am for him and for his ministry and his commitment to you and to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We have made our way, chapter 2, to the spot where Peter is really going to get into what I believe is the thrust, the body, the focus of this letter. And what Peter's been telling us, the first chapter and a half leading to this point, is that you are, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are an alien and a pilgrim. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this world is not your ultimate final resting place, and because of that, your inheritance doesn't come from this world. Your inheritance is with your heavenly Father, your Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what Peter's been saying is because we're aliens, we relate to the world differently than everyone else does. We're not here just as consumers trying to receive or to get. An alien is a person who begins to invest their lives in others with the love and the message of Jesus Christ. So what Peter's going to do this morning is he's going to take some of the themes that he's been discussing about our identity as aliens, and he's going to give us what I believe this morning is our aim, our goal as aliens and pilgrims. And I want to give it to you now so you can have it on the front end. Here's what Peter's going to say. Aliens are people who live to see others around them prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. An alien is a person whose total existence, their focus, is trying to see other people around them prepared for Christ's return. If you have your Bible or your device open to 1 Peter 2, verse 11, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word and jump into this text this morning. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. We read these words. Beloved... I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is God's word. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me, church? Father God, we come before you now with open Bibles, asking for you to speak to us. God, we're asking for you to remove distractions and to open our minds and our hearts to hear from you. God, as as you speak to us through your word this morning, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, 
Lord, would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. So what Peter's going to say is our aim as aliens, ultimately the tip of the sword, the tip of the spear for us, is to see people prepared for the return of Christ. Look in your Bibles at verse 12. I want to show you this in this passage of Scripture. Peter says to the believers in Asia Minor at the time, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice this next phrase, church, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, what Peter is alluding to is the fact that God started this world and he's going to end it one day. There's a consummation coming in which the one who spoke the world into existence will come to judge the living and the dead. What we know from the Bible is there's a day in the future fixed that only the Father knows where Jesus Christ will return on a white horse with a sword as a righteous king and judge. And what Peter's talking about when he says the day of visitation is he's referring to that day. There's a day coming when Christ is going to visit again and judge the living and the dead. And what he's saying is, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're an alien and a pilgrim, we're here to help people prepare for that day. You ever wondered why when you became a Christian, God didn't just zap you up and take you on to heaven? I don't know about you, but there have been a few times this past week watching the news when I wish that would happen, right? (laughs) Take me home, Lord Jesus, now, right? Uh, There are times when we can think that way, but the reason is there's actually a purpose for us now. He doesn't take us right home to be with him. There's a purpose for which we're living now. And what he says is we're to help people prepare for this return, so we're to, we're to live in such a way that we're getting people to a point that when Christ returns, they're glorifying him, they're praising him, they're worshiping him. So if we're going to do that, we've got to know what's going to happen at that return. What's going to happen when Christ comes again and the eastern sky is split and he enters this world as the sovereign judge and ruler? What's going to happen is the Bible's clear that Jesus Christ will divide the world into two groups. On the one hand, he's going to have the sheep. Um, The sheep are the people that acknowledge their desperate need for the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God. These are people that say, because of my pride, because of my lust, because of my hatred in my heart, I deserve a penalty, and the one who took that penalty for me is Jesus Christ. He died in my place, and because he died in my place and rose again on the third day, I can turn from my sin, I can repent from those things, and as I trust him, my trust establishes a bridge in which God gives me forgiveness, mercy, and grace. These are the people God's going to look at and say, enter into the joy of my salvation. These are the people God looks at and says, you're my child, you're my beloved. But the Bible is also clear that there's another group that's going to be there in Judgment Day, and that is going to be what the Bible describes as the goats. These are people who do not believe they need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Christ. They believe, left to themselves, they can be acceptable and worthy before a holy and righteous judge. These are people that see no need to repent from their pride, their lust, their jealousy, their anger, their their hatred. 
they're believing that they in and of themselves can save themselves. As we talk about here often at Riverview, these are people who believe they're the main character of their own story. What the Bible is clear about is that when Christ returns, these people will not be treated as his children. They'll be treated as his enemies. They'll be treated as people who are in full deserving position of the wrath and judgment of God in an everlasting hell. And I take no pleasure in saying this, that there's a sheep category and a goat category, but it's true. This is what's going to happen. It's not some dusty proposition in some book. It's not some academic theory that's way out there. This is actually what's going to happen in this world. The people around you are all either sheep or goats. And what Peter's saying to you and to me is, we are to be the people that are preparing people for this coming crossroad. We have to prepare people. The only way people can be prepared for this coming reality is if they repent of their sin and trust Jesus. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, what we're holding out to you, what we are declaring to you is you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. You're broken. You've got a problem. And Jesus is the only one that can fix it. Trust him. That's the only way you can prepare. Now, what Peter does here, though, for us is he's going to give us some really specific instruction about how we as believers can get ready to do this. How in the world can we be people as followers of Jesus that hold this out consistently to others? I was talking to my life group this morning at 930. We were going around the circle talking about church and and the importance of the body of Christ. And just about every person in our circle said one of the biggest challenges is we get distracted, right? We get busy, life happens, jobs happen, there are diapers to be changed, bills to be paid, life begins to happen, and it's easy to lose sight of what we're really supposed to be about. How in the world can we remember to be about preparing people for the return of Christ? Peter quickly is going to give us three reminders in these two verses I want to show you. Three quick reminders as to how you and I can sustainably and consistently help prepare people around us for the return of Christ. Number one, Peter says we've got to remember who we are. Said another way, I like the way Nathan alluded to this in the mess in the service. Our time of singing, we've got to remember whose we are. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 here. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now those phrases, sojourners and exiles, that's what we've been talking about from day one in First Peter. We're aliens, we're pilgrims. This world's not our home. He's linking back up from chapter one, verse one, and the thing that was there as he describes us as aliens. But there's another designation he gives us that's new to the book of 1 Peter. He calls you and I, did you notice this in verse 11? He calls us the beloved. He says, you are the loved ones. Now, who's he talking about there? He's saying that you and I are the object of love of the triune God. He says, God loves you. Now, I'm convinced one of the reasons this kind of just rattles around in our head and is filed away in our circular mental files is because we've forgotten who God is. The reason 
understanding that God loves me doesn't make a big deal, it's not a big deal to me. And why it doesn't really resonate and take root in my heart sometimes is I forget the one who's loving me. So can I just remind you for a minute who loves you? God is the creator. He made you. He formed you in your mother's womb. You're not an accident. You're not a random bag of chemical reactions just walking this world aimlessly. God made you, and he made you for a purpose. And he made you to worship and live for his glory. And he loves you. He cares about you. The same God whose creator is also all-powerful. He spoke the world into existence with just a word. Jesus calms the wind and the waves with just a phrase, peace be still. And this God who's all-powerful, who's creator, he loves you. He's not only all-powerful, though, he's all-knowing. God knows everything about you. Everything, past, present, future. In fact, God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows your feelings. God knows your emotions. He sees the depths of your heart. He knows the things about you that no one else knows. Did that list just pop up in your mind? That list of secrets, that list of mistakes, that list of failures that the enemy often uses to to bring shame into our lives. God knows you the best and he loves you the most. Not only is God creator, he's all-knowing, he's uh, all-powerful, God is also present everywhere we go. There is no place you or I can go in this world where God is not with us. There's no victory, there's no mountaintop, there's no valley that we can walk through that God is not present right there with us. Every place we go, God is with us, and in spite of those things, and through those things, God loves you. God loves you. Let me tell you why that's so important. The reason the love of God is so important is I have to let what I know override what I feel. I have to let what I know, the truth that I know, has got to override what my experience and my feelings tell me sometimes. Your feelings, your experience is a lousy GPS. Do you know that? It's lousy. It's horrible. It's terrible. Our feelings often tell us to go right when we should go left. Our feelings often tell us that we're alone and we're isolated and nobody cares about us when that couldn't be further from the truth. So one of my roles as pastor here at Riverview is is often to walk into a hospital room, to walk into someone's living room, to walk and have a cup of coffee with somebody or a bite of lunch and to look at them and empathize with them and to listen to the emotional pain or relational pain or financial or physical. Pick your adverb. We, we deal with the broken, fallen world, and we all deal with different effects of that in different po- po- parts of our lives. And part of what I'm doing when I sit and talk to people is I'm trying to connect with them. I'm trying to love on them. I'm trying to empathize with them. But do you know what else I'm trying to do? I'm trying to help them remember what they know is true. Some of you this morning may feel alone. If you're a follower of Christ, I want you to know you are not alone. God loves you. 
He cares for you. Some of you may deal with, I know, physical pain on a daily basis. And it's easy to think, have I been abandoned? Does anybody care about me? Yes, God loves you. Don't let how you feel override what you know. You can take what you know about God to the bank every single day. We've got to let what we know override what we feel. Why is this so important? Because when we do this, it positions me to say to other people, you need this kind of love. The love that I'm experiencing, that I've been given in Christ, it's the only thing you can count on. How do I prepare people around me for Christ's coming return? It's by remembering that I am loved and that other people need this love too. Not your 401k, goodness me, not the political cycle can save us or help us. Christ's love and his love alone is what we can count on. What do we have to do to help people prepare around us for the return of Christ? Remember who we are. Number two, we have to live lives of submission to God. We have to live submitted and surrendered lives. Look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, here's the phrase, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You and I are to fight against sin and cultivate holiness in our lives. You and I are to have a war against sin in our lives as believers in which we're trying to kill sin, starve sin out, and cultivate righteousness, and holiness. Now, I, I, growing up, totally misunderstood this because I understood grace as something that prepared me for the next life, but I didn't understand that grace begins to work in my life now. I thought grace was something where I prayed a prayer, I responded to God in a particular way, and that meant I was going to heaven when I died. I got my ticket, it's punched, I'm ready to go. But what I didn't understand is that grace also is a power, it's a force that God unleashes in my life to change me now from the inside out. Now here's what's important. You and I have a role in cultivating holiness and righteousness in our life as grace is changing us from the inside out. Let me give you a mental picture of this. It's like gardening. Now you're not looking at somebody with a green thumb, so I'm not, what I'm about to share with you is not from personal experience, it's more secondhand experience, okay? When you put a seed in the ground, it will not do to get the dirt ready, put the seed in the ground, and water it once and leave it alone, right? That's not going to grow anything. What you have to do is you have to come back and continually water that seed, cultivate it, pull the weeds that would choke out a good crop from coming up out of the ground, you have to continually cultivate and work that garden. Our hearts are a lot like a garden. The seed of salvation has been given to us if you know Christ. It's, it's, got, it's taken root in our hearts. But part of what you and I are called to do is we're called to pull weeds to get rid of sin in our lives, to run from it, from, to turn from it. We're called to cultivate holiness and righteousness by feeding our hearts the grace that he gives us through his word and through his spirit. You and I are called to cultivate righteousness and holiness in our lives. The reason this is so important is because people need to see 
my identity in Christ come through in my actions. People need to see the change that I profess actually come through the way I talk and the way I act. Think about this with me for a moment. When you tell somebody that one day a Jewish teacher who died and rose again is coming back on a white horse, there are going to be people that look at you and say, are you crazy? You really believe that this Jewish guy who died and who you say rose again is going to come back on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth? You really believe that? And we say, yes, we believe that. We, we believe the word of God and what it says about Jesus. One of the ways you help people begin to see things that they can't see with their spiritual eyes is to help them with their physical eyes see the change in your life. A transformed life is one of the ways we portray our heavenly citizenship to a lost and dying world. One of the encouraging things for me as a pastor is to sit in different places and different contexts and hear people, members of our church, talk about their interactions with people in the community where they see us acting and responding differently to things that happen. And they ask, what's different about you? Why aren't you more upset about this? Or why aren't you more worried about that? And for us to be able to say, my life's been transformed by the grace of God. My citizenship is not primarily American. My citizenship is in heaven. And because of that, I'm living a totally different kind of life. Living a transformed life, living a life where we're uh, seeing the grace of God change us, positions us to say to others, you need this transformation too. You need to know about this kingdom that's out there that you can't see. How do we help prepare people for the coming return of Christ? It's by this transformed life he calls us to live. Number three, number three, we need to understand where we are living. We need to understand where, and I would add this phrase, when we are living. Look in your Bibles at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of the assumptions Peter makes is that we will be accused of evil as followers of Jesus. It's going to happen. It's a fixed reality. It's not a potential reality. It's going to happen. Both in verse 12, if you skip down and look at verse 15, it's clear we're going to face some form of persecution. Different than the New Testament era that they were living in, the the way we will face it today is by not affirming the all-important value of personal autonomy. The reason the church in 2016 in America will be called evil is because we don't believe that you should do whatever your heart tells you to do. Was it Nathan? Remember, I think it was you talking about your high school motto was, if it feels good, do it. <laughs> just do If it feels, if, if you feel a certain way, just live that out. And so what we're bumping up against when we say we don't think you should follow your heart and do whatever feels right to you is we're bumping up against people that say a woman should be able to do whatever she wants with her body. We're bumping up against people that say, if you think you're no longer a boy, now a girl, you should do it. We're bumping up against people that would say, well, if you feel attracted to that person, go for it. We're bumping up against people that would say, you should be able to die however you want on your own terms. What's underneath all of those, abortion, gender dysphoria, uh, same-sex attraction, euthanasia, what's under all of those, the current running under all of those, is our society thinks 
that personal autonomy, doing what feels right to you, is the most important value. And what we're saying is, we think doing what's right to you, following your own heart, is the quickest way to get into bondage. It's the quickest way to be enslaved further and further to sin. The answer is not looking deeper and deeper within. The answer is Christ. Answer comes outside of you. It's alien. It's, it's from without, not from within. But our culture, hook, line, and sinker, has bought the idea that the answer is within you. You've got the answer. And if you just look deep enough into your heart, you can find it. We say, no, that's the quickest way to experience death and destruction in your life. So why is that going to cause a problem for us? Because we're not going to agree that a woman should be able to do whatever she wants with her body. We believe a child in the womb is precious, not an inconvenience. And we're going to be pro-life all the way through. If, if that mom decides to keep that child and has to go on government assistance, we're not going to look down on her because she kept her baby. See, it's easy for us to be pro-life over here. I didn't hear any amens a minute ago. Uh, it's easy for us to be pro-life over here. Sometimes it's a little bit harder on the back end when somebody keeps their child. Are we going to support that single mom? Are we going to love her? We're not going to toe the line on what our culture is saying. And so we will face persecution. We'll face people that look at us and say, well, don't, don't you want people to be happy? Who, who are you to stand in the way of somebody's happiness? Please hear me, and if that's where you are this morning and you're listening to this message, hear very carefully what I'm saying. We are not trying to stand in the way of anyone's happiness. We want you to experience real joy, but we believe the only way to do that is for you to be connected to the purpose for which you were created. Real joy doesn't come from doing whatever you want. Real joy comes from doing what you were made to do. What were you made to do? You were made to worship. You were made to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the only way to do that it's through repenting of your sin, repenting of following your heart, and trusting Christ, laying your life before him. The reason this is so important, church, is because if we don't get when we're living, it's very easy for us to become very frustrated, bitter, angry people. If we don't understand the times in which we're living, it's very easy to get angry and frustrated. So just just give you an illustration. Let your minds rest for a second. Um, imagine a Cubs fan. Anybody like the Cubs in here? Yes. Oh, oh my goodness. Where's the Cardinal Nation out there? <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. I know you're out there. I know the Cardinals fans are just seething with anger right now because of the Cubs' success, which looks short-lived, by the way. Um, sorry, Cubs fans. But just for a moment, imagine with me that a Cubs fan decides to go to a Cardinals game, okay? He's got his hat on, he's got his blue shirt on, he's all decked out from head to toe, and the Cubs are playing the Cardinals in St. Louis. And this Cubs fan's strolling in, and he's barking out things about how great the Cubs are and their record, and of course the Cardinals fans are saying, how many rings do you have? And back and forth and back and forth they go. Well, he sits down for the game. And as the game starts to go on, the Cardinals fans, of course, begin to cheer for the Cardinals. When the Cardinals score a run, the Cardinals have a good defensive play, they all cheer. And as the game progresses, the Cubs fan just becomes irate. He says, why are you guys cheering for the Cardinals? 
Don't you see how great the Cubs are? We've won 100 games this year. How in the world could you be cheering for the Cardinals? And he begins to stand up and shout and get irate after every time the Cardinals do something good. Well, eventually, what's going to happen to that guy? Eventually, if he gets more and more irate, they're eventually going to drag his behind out of the stadium, right? They're not going to let him start a fight or get into some real big problem. And as he's being drug out, somebody's going to look at him and say, hey, don't you know that you're at a Cardinals game? Don't you know that we're cheering for the home team? Why are you so mad that we're cheering for our own team? I think a lot of followers of Jesus are like that Cubs fan. We're angry because we see people around us cheering for the wrong things. And we're getting more angry because they're cheering louder. Can I just make this observation to you? We are not the home team. We're not. We're not the value system that you and I believe as followers of Jesus is not what this world values. And so when I watch Fox News or when I watch CNN and I get madder and madder and madder because I see people cheering for the wrong things, I have to remember the church is not the home team. In fact, it's never been the home team. There may have been a season in our history as a country where the values of our country lined up with where we were morality-wise, but it wasn't for the same reasons. We were doing it because it was biblical. Our culture was doing it because it was passed down through this kind of Judeo-Christian ethic. But as the culture has shifted, we haven't moved, but our culture has. And we have to decide, are we going to be angry, bitter, frustrated people? Or are we going to recognize we're not the home team anymore? Never have been. When I understand where I'm living, it helps me respond in grace and humility without compromise. If I don't understand where I'm at, it's like that crazy Cubs fan who's standing up at every inning shouting at the Cardinals fan, wondering why they're cheering for their own team. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question about helping people around us be prepared for the coming return of Christ. Are there people in your life today, this morning, that you could bring to mind that you're actively trying to prepare for Christ's return? Are there people that you work with? Are there family members? Are there friends? Are there neighbors? People in your life that you're actively trying to prepare for Christ's coming return. Can I give you one really quick, easy application, moms and dads? One of the places we've got to start is our kids. I appreciated Nathan talking about his children. The first person that came to my mind when I asked myself this question that I'm asking you is I'm talking about my six-year-old going on seven-year-old Seth. He needs Jesus in a bad way. Amen? Got an amen on the front row here. From mama. Our kids need to recognize they need Christ. Parents, one of our commitments here at this church is to help put you in a position to help you understand how to have those conversations. I know those conversations can be scary with your kids. But man, they need to know that your faith is not just a compartment on Sunday morning. It's not just this box that you go to at 9.30 and 11 on Sundays. It's a part of who you are. Now let me tell you what's going to happen the rest of the book of 1 Peter. 
First Peter is going to take this idea of helping people be prepared for the coming return of Christ. He's going to take it, that concept and he's going to flesh it out in different contexts or environments. One of the places he's going to flesh that is the home. He's going to say, what does it look like to be a home that's preparing people for Christ's return? What does it look like at work? But what we're going to talk about this morning for the rest of our time is Peter's going to help us understand what it looks like to be people that are preparing those around us for the return of Christ as we relate to the government. And if I had like a soundtrack up here, I'd have like scary, ominous music playing in the background as we talk about this. Peter is going to help us understand how do I live like this kind of alien in the context of relating to a government, okay? So let's talk about the government for a moment, shall we? Uh, The government is actually a biblical institution. The government was designed by God for his people to be a restraint to evil and to promote morally good and praiseworthy behavior. In fact, look in your Bibles at verse 14. This is where he says this. It says, Governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Institutions governing all the way from the emperor, that's the president, modern day kind of thing, the executive branch, all the way down to municipalities, they're designed by God to restrain evil, to to put fear into the hearts of people that would prey on the weak or the vulnerable, and to encourage morally beneficial behavior. You see, doing things God's way is not just the right thing to do, it's the good thing to do. It's what's best for you. That's the reason we don't believe that just because you happen to be attracted to somebody of the same sex that you should give in to that, it's gonna hurt you. That's not God's design for you. That's the result of sin in your life. Doing things God's way is not just the right way, it's good. And so what he says is you put government in a place to, to restrain evil and to encourage good. He also makes it clear that believers are not allowed to distance themselves or disconnect from being under these authorities. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In other words, I can't use my freedom from sin and my freedom in Christ as an excuse to say, well, I'm going to go into a cave and brick myself up and never see the light of day. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm going to go to my work, go to my home, and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to engage in any kind of way. No, you can't do that either. We're supposed to be uh, actively engaged in government. Even some of us may be serving in those kind of capacities. So what is our response supposed to be? If that's not, if we can't detach, if we can't retreat from it, look at verse 13 for the answer. How are we supposed to relate to a government in such a way that it prepares those around us for Christ's return? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. You and I are supposed to submit to governing authorities. Now, before you guys throw something at me, let me tell you what that means, okay? Submission means that I'm willingly placing myself under another's authority. Submission is not something done to me. It's not the picture of somebody putting me in a headlock and making me do something. It's me willingly placing myself under the protection and care of another. So here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, you and I, 
part of us preparing those around us for the return of Christ, one of the ways we do that is by submitting to governing authorities, placing ourselves willingly under them. So here's what that means. That means, yes, we're supposed to pay taxes. Anybody enjoy paying taxes in here? I know. Yes, we're to obey the laws of the land, even if that means municipalities all the way to the national level, all across the board. We're even to show respect to elected officials. Oh, come on. Now you're getting crazy, Spencer. Why why, why do you have to do that? Look at verse 17. Don't believe me. Look at your Bibles. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor. Show respect to people that are in those positions. Well, well, surely, surely Peter doesn't mean for us to do that with corrupt, inept government. Surely he's not talking about people that are, that are totally opposed to what I believe. Remember who he's writing to. Remember he's writing to New Testament Christians, many of whom would have been brutally persecuted. Some of them had family members killed by the Roman government. Nero had Christians burned on sticks to light Rome. The cross was something the Romans invented. The Colosseum was a place where thousands of Christians lost their lives. And Peter's saying to them that they're to submit to that kind of governing authority? It would not have been uncommon for people reading this to have family members killed by the Romans because of their faith. And Peter says, submit to them. Submit to governing authorities. Now, why? Why is he asking us to submit to them, whether we agree with them or like them or not? Here's the answer. We submit to government because we are submitting to God. We submit to governing authorities, not because they're smart. Sometimes they're not. Not because they have all the answers or they, they know the direction our country should go. We submit to them because first and foremost, we're submitting to God. I want to read these verses with you again one more time. And I want you to notice how many times Peter turns to God as the reason for submitting to government. Look in your Bibles at verse 13. I'm going to read to put the right emphasis on the right syllable. Watch this. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme or governors as sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Now notice those verses. Everyone has a reference, has as its ground or foundation, submitting to God vertically as the reason I submit to authorities horizontally. Now why does this point people to Christ? Here's the answer. Well, this will close. Submission to government reveals a trust in the sovereignty of God that is unexplainable. When I submit to governing authorities, even ones I disagree with, 
My trust in that reveals a trust in a higher power and a sovereign king that tells me it's unexplainable. People cannot make any sense out of why you and I are calm in this political cycle. Hopefully you are calm. Can I just remind you? God knows he's going to be elected November 8th. God has guided this moment in history to this point, and what we will get is what we will get because that is what God wants. Now, I could, I could spend a lot of time talking about why or how. Is it judgment? Is it blessing? We could, we could spend a lot of time talking about it, but God's not surprised. God doesn't have emergency sessions within the Trinity about what's happening in this world. God's sovereign, He's in control. And so part of what submitting means is because I'm submitting to God, I can look at this political cycle and say, these people are nuts. But God is in control. Can I tell you that we've been given a gift, this political cycle? In my lifetime, and I think all of us would probably agree, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen two candidates that are more flawed, more broken. I mean, we're 10 days away from the election. And the FBI is investigating one of the candidates. I mean, it's like I'm watching Jerry Springer or something. I mean, I'm serious. It is off the chain. I mean, I get my popcorn out and I watch the news. What's going to happen next? Right? Because it's insane. But can I tell you what it's shown us? Whether we like it or not, these two candidates reveal where our country really is at. It's shown us, while we don't like it, we don't agree with it, but it's shown us where we really are. So how can we have a trust in the sovereignty of God in the face of these two political candidates? There is a high probability one of these two people is going to sit in the White House. (laughs) Probability's high. How can I do that? Because I know who holds my future in his hand. I don't have to worry or be afraid. Well, if so-and-so gets elected, they're going to do this and this and this. Yes, I know. And some of those things are evil. Some of those things might hurt you. They can't take anything away from me, really. Oh, they could take away my 401k. They could hurt my, my financial situation. They may be able to make my life more difficult. But they can't take what I've got in Christ Jesus away from me. We say that's the most important thing. Is it or isn't it? I mean, moments like this in history have a way of revealing what's really important to us. You and I have been given a gift. And the gift we've been given is in a moment of turbulence and a moment of turmoil politically to be the people of grace and peace saying, yes, I've thought about it. Yes, I'm concerned about X, Y, Z, but I am at peace with whatever happens. And people next to you at work go, what are you talking about? Have you seen her or have you seen him? And you say, I know, but I believe that God's sovereign. One of the ways that you and I prepare people around us for the coming return of Christ is to be the people that are concerned but never worried. We're aware, but we're never anxious because we know the one who holds the future in his hand. Let me make one more clarifying remark and I'll be done, okay? What this doesn't mean when I say we're to submit to the government is that we never submit to the government if that causes us to disobey God. Okay? Because we're submitting to God first, 
because he's the one we're submitting to that drives everything else in our lives. If our government ever asks us to do something contrary to what God has said, we always go with God. We always obey God, and if necessary, we will disobey the government. Contrary to what some of our political candidates think, we are not going to change our views on morality. Well, you're just going to have to get with the times and get with the program and change with what's happening in our culture. We're not going to do that. And it's not because we're trying to send somebody's sway of somebody's happiness or we're trying to be bigots or mean or hateful people. It's because we believe those things are ultimately going to hurt you. We believe giving in to same-sex attraction is not going to make you happy. It's not. I know that's what our culture is telling you. I know some of you out there that are struggling with that this morning think, if I could just be that person, if I could just do that, it'll make me happy, it'll satisfy me. It won't. It won't. And so the reason we're not going to budge on where we're at biblically and morality-wise is because we believe God has spoken, and if God has spoken, the matter is settled. And we need to be the people of grace and truth and love and compassion that communicate that in a way that's redemptive, but we never are going to budge on that. I want to do something in closing this morning that we do semi-frequently here. I want to have a focused time of prayer. And what I want you to do if you're physically able is I want you in a moment to kneel and turn around and use the chair as a kneeling bench this morning. Now, some of you are not physically able. We don't want to get the EMTs in here to get you out of here, so don't try it. If you have a question about kneeling, don't kneel. But if you're able to kneel, in just a moment, we're going to kneel and pray. Let me tell you what we're not going to pray for. We are not going to pray for my candidate getting in the White House or your candidate getting in the White House. Let me tell you what we're going to pray for. We're going to pray for the souls of the people of this country. Because before we're ever primarily concerned about what lever they're going to pull on November 8th, we're concerned about their everlasting souls. My prayer is that we as a church will have opportunity in this Jerry Springer political season that we'll have opportunity to say to people, you're not going to find your hope in one of these two people. That's obvious. Let me show you where you can find hope. It's in Christ Jesus. So if you're physically able, would you get down on your knees with me? Use your chair as a kneeling bench right there in front of you. If you're physically able, I just want you to, for a moment, just right where you are in time of prayer, Just still your heart before the Lord right now. Just calm yourself amidst the busyness of this day. Just take a moment and silence your heart and your mind before the Lord. Father God, We as your people are coming before you on our knees. Because, Lord, we want to be in a posture of declaring our need for you. God, in a day and age when self-sufficiency is the rage and we think we can do everything ourselves, Lord, we want to be in a posture right now of declaring our need for you. And God, right now, I pray for your church in this country. I pray that you would revive and refresh your church. And Lord, that we would be the people 
We would be the people that see this political season not as just something we need to endure, but God, would you please help us see this political season as an opportunity to make known the riches and the glories and the splendors of what you've done for us in Jesus. Oh God, would you revive your people again? Would you refresh your church God, would you help us to see this as an opportunity, this turmoil and turbulence where we know our hope's not there, but we want to point people to where they can find true hope. Would you give us that opportunity, Lord? And Father, we pray for our country. Oh God, we pray for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. I pray right now all over this room, you'd be bringing specific people to our minds that we're praying for. God, I pray that this season you would open the hearts of people to hear the goodness of your grace. Oh God, would you please give divine appointments to these people throughout this room to make known the glorious riches of the grace you've given us in Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for the privilege we have of carrying the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Would you help us to do that with grace and peace? grace and truth as we love people in this community in this world finally Lord I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you God there may be people here even today in this room who walked in thinking there was something coming to realize that they're not God I pray that you'd open their eyes to see the, the brokenness and the blackness and the seriousness of their sin and Father God I pray that you would Take the gospel that was presented this morning and plant it like a seed in their hearts. They respond in repentance and faith and trust you for salvation. Oh God, would you use this church to be a light on this hill and throughout this community and the world for the glorious riches of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. God, we love you and we lift all these things up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.